0: Hello and welcome to this Bible study of 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm Father Lee Nelson, the rector of Christ Church of Waco, and it's good to have you with us over this uh, video medium this evening. Let us pray. O God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the faithful, sanctify this congregation by your abiding presence. Bless those who minister in holy things. Enlighten the minds of your people more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Bring erring souls to the knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ, and those who are walking in the way of life keep steadfast to the end. Give patience to the sick and afflicted, and renew them in body and soul. Guard those who are strong and prosperous from forgetting you. Increase in us your many gifts of grace, and make us all fruitful in good works. This we ask, O blessed Spirit, whom with the Father and the Son we worship and glorify, one God, world without end. Amen. We're continuing on with this discussion of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, This is a a wonderful uh, work uh, in the New Testament, uh, which largely focuses upon the calling of Christians in the world uh, to a life that we could best um, basically say is a life of priesthood. It's a life in which uh, Christians make spiritual sacrifices before God, in which they are obedient to God in every way, and in which they uh, live lives of peace in the world. Um, The question before the people of these churches, which again are in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these are Christians of the dispersion, or what Peter calls exiles, um, are living in a time in which they are very strange uh, to the world around them. Uh, remember that uh, the first century world in which Christians lived was a pagan world. It was a world in which uh, people sacrificed to the pantheon of gods in those days, and uh, they were strange to their neighbors and strange sometimes even to their uh, spouses, as we'll see in this chapter. Um, in the previous chapters, uh Peter has besought these Christians uh, who live as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. They are to maintain good conduct. They are to be uh, uh, submissive and subject uh, to the human institutions that surround them, including uh, the emperor as supreme and governors uh, who are sent to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. Now, as we said last week, uh, this does not preclude the reality that there are um, limits to earthly authority. And this is certainly the case, that there are limits to all manner of earthly authority. But we're experiencing a time right now in the church's life where uh, it is not wrong uh, to submit to uh, um, government institutions, especially as they ask us to uh, to step away from opening up our doors for public worship, um, because we're going to, uh, by uh, submitting to this wisdom and submitting to this knowledge, which, which many of us don't have, uh, we're going to be able to uh, uh, stem the tide of a pandemic. This is an example of that. Peter is certainly not saying the emperor is a wonderful guy. You should uh, do everything he says. He's saying be submissive for the sake of peace, um, and also so that those who see you doing right uh, can praise God for it. Um, who can uh, so that they can uh, uh, see this uh, submission. Uh, Not only to the emperor, but also to earthly masters. There are slaves in this church. There are servants in this church. And they are to be uh, submissive to their masters. Now, he's very clear here that uh, sometimes uh, a servant will be submissive to an unjust master. And he asks this question, what's better? Um, What credit is it? If for when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently. But if you do right and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, you have God's approval. Now, it's with all that in mind that I want to jump into chapter 3, because this is a section that can be rather controversial today about uh, the kinds of relationships which Christians ought to have, especially uh, women to their husbands. This is a time in which certainly uh, many new Christians in the first century are women, uh, they have been reached in this way. In fact, the very first Christians in this part of the world were women. Uh, we know that the first Christians in Galatia were women, and we know that from the Acts of the Apostles. And it's certainly the case that they're in some marriages to pagan men that could be rather difficult, could be bears, could be harsh, could be even in many ways abusive. And the question is, how are these Christian women in particular, uh, to make uh, a witness to their husbands in the midst of this. Now, we're going to get into some really strange territory here tonight, and I, I want to be clear about this in the first place, and so I'll just lay out a few things. One is that no Christian um, who, who is free to do so has to submit uh, or he was free to not do so. Has to submit uh, to being abused. That is not what I'm saying tonight at all. So don't mis- don't misunderstand that. Um, I'm also not saying tonight that women should put up with lots and lots and lots of abuse in marriage. I'm not saying that at all. Um, what I'm doing is simply giving the historic context and trying to give some sort of sense of what that uh, could hold out for us today. Um, but let me just read it and, and we'll jump in. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So this is really uh, the first thing that Peter says in the midst of this. He's, he continue, he's continuing on with this list of things that Christians should do in uh, submitting to earthly authority and submitting to uh, masters, even if they're evil, even if they're abusive. Then he talks about uh, wives being submissive. Now, what does this word submissive mean? Probably submissive is not the best translation of this word. Perhaps the best translation of this word will be something like subject, um, meaning put your will under that of your husband. These are, again, pagan men. They do not uh, necessarily want the best for their wives. They can be difficult. They can be a struggle. They are uh, certainly going to do some things that could cause their wives some uh, moral qualms. But listen to what's being said. He he says, Be submissive to your husbands so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. The purpose here is to evangelize their husbands. And they should be so uh, intent upon this uh, that they're willing to bear with the difficulties of their irreverent pagan husbands so that they may be won over without a word. Now, I think this term without a word is really important. Um, it is essentially saying that that these women ought to make a witness to their husbands that is silent, that is uh, uh, um, patient, uh, that is forbearing, Um, they are to understand, and I think this is something that we can draw from this, that that their husbands will be brought to salvation in the same way that they have been, uh, which is by this very, very, very patient Christian witness. Let's do what he says further in verse 2. When they see a reverent and chaste behavior, meaning that uh, these women have a behavior or are to have a behavior, that first of all uh, pays reverence and, and honor to God, but is also chaste meaning that they are uh, not going to participate in sexual immorality. In particular, uh, there's, a, there's a Greek word which would have been known to people then, uh, the Greek word "pornēia," We know it today in, in, a, in a variety of ways, uh, but this means sexual immorality. Uh, these women are to avoid that, even with their own husbands. So let's make that clear. They're not to uh, submit in every way to their husbands, but are to maintain chastity. And the idea is that when these men see this, these women's, the, the, the reverent and chaste behavior of their wives, they will be won without a word. Now, this is a very difficult place, again, because the question is, well, what about women that that get pressed to the nth degree? Well, let's just say this for clarity's sake, that um, in the first century, uh, women's rights had not come to full fruition yet, as of yet, um, and Paul is dealing with what he has in place. He's dealing with the kind of culture that he has to work with. But he's making a very important case here, which is that uh, by patient forbearance, A wife, or in this case, even a husband, can make a wonderful witness to their unbelieving spouse uh, by, by being committed to reverence towards God and chastity, especially in their sexual lives. Um, Chastity is a a very uh, maligned word today, but it essentially means sexual morality or or sexual continence in this sense. It means to uh, see oneself and to act as one um, who is uh, submissive to God within the realm of our bodily life. Now, why would we do that? Well, we do that uh, for the Christian so that we can truly love. And love does not consist in giving another everything they want. That's not what Christian love is, and it's certainly not Christian love within marriage. It is rather to be a submissive to God in our sexual lives in particular, but also in every aspect of our bodily life, um, so that we may love our neighbor, including those that are uh, just happen to be married to us. Um, and so this is this is the challenge going out to these women. Now certainly there are some that are going to face abuse. They're They're going to Believe, and many women have this problem today. There's no other way to do this. There's no other place to be. Um, they're stuck in this position, and Peter is giving them an encouragement uh, to let their uh, let their witness be uh, without a word in this way. And he continues on, and I want you to see this whole thing, because often you just you latch on to one verse here and you kind of think, Oh, that's troubling, but let's keep going. Let not yours be the outward adornment with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious." Now, if we're to take uh, the, the New Testament historians at their word, and I think they're right about this, Peter is not only writing in the midst of a, of a church in Rome that is largely poor, and indeed uh, probably largely not only poor, but many slaves within it, then it is highly likely that this church in Asia is also highly poor. And so the one of the things being said here is, uh, you know, don't seek after... Uh, Wearing fine clothing, decorating yourself with gold. But let that hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, be that adornment of yourself. Now this is not only true uh, for women, it's also true for men. The thing that God looks upon is the heart. The thing that God really desires is the transformation of our hearts. Um, to see them adorned with goodness, to see them adorned with virtue, to see them uh, flourish in this way. Not to see us outwardly dressed in an amazing way, but he's interested in, if I may put it even more simply, the interior life uh, that we have, a life of prayer, uh, a life of hiddenness, um, the life that uh, Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, that which you do in, in secret will be rewarded um, the interior life is a secret life. And, and one of the things that, that we could easily say, to these, say about these women is that they're being called upon to live a secret life of devotion to the Lord in the midst of difficult lives. Indeed, lives that include lots and lots of suffering, uh, forbearing patiently uh, very difficult husbands well, at the same time cultivating this interior adornment and this interior disposition of hope in God. Let me keep going through this. So once the holy women who hoped in God, see, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are now her children if you do right and let nothing terrify you. So he draws up this uh, image from uh, Genesis in the book of Genesis and Sarah the wife of Abraham um who uh is also in herself a, a very complex character um who laughs when she's told she'll conceive a child uh who try, who gets her husband to uh sleep with her mistress and conceive a child um you know all these things taking place but but think about Abraham and Sarah for a while Sarah goes off on this adventure with her husband Abraham. They go to a faraway land. Uh, They do things that are baffling to Abraham. They do things that are baffling to Sarah. Um, They go even into Egypt. They go and they do all kinds of things. And Sarah is with him on this. She's along for this. Now, Abraham is not without faith. In fact, he is the father of faith. Um, But did it all make sense to him all the time? Well, no, it didn't. Um, The hope here, I believe, in in the New Testament, and it's throughout the New Testament, is this idea that uh, the unbelieving spouse can be redeemed and sanctified and indeed even saved through the witness of the believing spouse. And so Peter is calling here upon these women to make this wonderfully dynamic but also full of suffering witness to their husbands. Of becoming children of Sarah in this way of faithful witness. That has to be said, is that they they hope in God. They hope not in uh, their husbands eventually getting it. They hope not in their husbands eventually treating them more kindly. They hope in God. And this is good news, actually, for all Christians, because we all face uh, difficult situations with people that uh, drive us crazy and make uh, for a very difficult life. And, And one of the things that we can continually be called to is this way of cultivating this interior relationship with Jesus Christ, this interior relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, that can sustain us through difficulty and suffering. And this is not only a message to women and wives and, and husbands, but to uh, slaves in this church, uh, to those who are uh, uh, deeply concerned by the way that uh, the emperor is treating them or the way that uh, earthly governors are treating them. Then, uh, not to neglect the men, Peter turns to husbands. And he says, "'Likewise, you husbands live considerately with your wives.'" bestowing honor on the woman as the weaker sex since you are joint heirs of the grace of life in order that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, here's another difficult, highly controversial uh, text here. These, just this one verse, verse 7 in chapter 3, is difficult, but let's break it down a little bit. Likewise, that means that husbands are to uh, observe all that the women are called to. Um, men are absolutely called to be submissive to their wives. There's no question about this in my mind. I want to be absolutely clear about this. Uh, that if you're a man and, you're, and your wife desires something from you, desires you to go and do this or do that or take care of this and take care of this, and it's no evil and it's a good thing and it, it doesn't require you to uh, give up faith in, in the Lord, uh, then you should do it. Show kindness, show goodness to your wife. Uh, men are called in this text to make this dynamic witness in the same way that women are to their unbelieving wives. So this is, in, in essence, very important. But he also speaks not only of, of treating these women with consideration, uh, listen, listen this, live considerately. Can you imagine first century men considering the needs and desires of their wives and their decisions? This is dynamically uh, 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 revolutionary stuff going on here. Bestowing honor on the woman. Um, How many first century men bestowed honor on their wives? And it's in that context that he says on the woman as the weaker sex. Now he doesn't mean that here, and I want to be very clear about this, this does not mean uh, that that women are inferior. It does not mean that women are ontologically inferior. It does not mean any of that at all. That's not the point. What's being said here is that um, women need uh, the protection of a good man. Women need uh, very much uh, to be cared for. Women need very much uh, to have a considerate and honorable man in their lives. Um, single women need a considerate and honorable man in their lives. Married women need their husbands to be considerate and honorable, to protect them, to care for them. And listen to what he says here. Since you are joint heirs of the grace of life, in order that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there are some scenarios that you can imagine here. One would be that a Christian man is is praying uh, for his wife to be Come to faith, which in itself is a uh, uh, a very strange thing in the first century. I mean, he very probably could have said, "Hey, honey, we're we're going to be Christians now. Uh, you know, you're going to be baptized." But but that's not what's going on here. Um, at the same time, it might very well be uh, that that he is uh, a Christian um, who is. Uh, who is used to a very uh, uh, male-dominated society where he always gets his way, and now he has to think about living with consideration and honor towards his wife. And he says, you are joint heirs. The inheritance which is theirs in Jesus Christ is given to them together. And that's really the message that I want to focus on tonight, which is that if you're married, it is husband and wife who receive the promise of God together. As husband and wife. Um, I've known through the years, and it's a very difficult situation when this happens, uh, men who, uh, who are never accompanied by their wives to church. I've known women who are never accompanied by their husbands to church. Uh, women who will often stay home because their husbands are at home and they want to be supportive of their husbands, and this is a very complicated thing. But at the end of the day, what the New Testament teaches is this, that, uh, that the gospel is not just for one spouse or for the other, but for both. Their prayers are to flourish in the context of praying for one another in terms of uh, being witnesses to one another, in terms of showing each other uh, the goodness of God. So this is very, very, very important. And I, I want to say, if there's any question about this, you know, please ask me uh, what's going on, because I know it's, I know it's very complicated, um, and, and uh, well, maybe not just complicated, but, but very controversial. And so I, wanna, wanna, I want you to know that I'm in this, but I want to also exegete the Scripture as well. Finally, now uh, this may be uh, at this point in the letter that uh, this letter is a, is an amalgamation of multiple letters and he's closing out this part of the letter and then these these have been sort of stitched together over time. It could also be just this finishing out this section about what submission is to look like, uh, not only to a spouse but to a master or to a governor. And here he says, finally all of you have unity of spirit sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He's talking about the very identifications of a healthy Christian community. They're to be unified in spirit, meaning they are to uh, have uh, what you might even say, to have a culture of unity, desiring the same things, desiring the same ends, of sympathy, of care for one another, of love for the brethren, a tender heart, think about what a tender heart means. We use this phrase a lot. He's very tender-hearted or she's very tender-hearted. And, and what it means is they can be very, I don't want to use the word sensitive, but certain jabs at someone who's tender-hearted hurt more. And what he's saying is be that, be tender-hearted, be kind, be loving. Um, be the kind of person who who is very soft of heart. Don't be someone who's hardened to the love of others with a humble mind, um, a very simple mind. I remember uh, having a a priest friend of mine who at some point gave up. He was a very, very bright guy. But he gave up on reading very uh, high-end theology books because he found that it just gave him this inflated sense of self. And so he read uh, books that he would gladly uh, recommend to his parishioners, uh, gladly recommend to uh, normal everyday people, and he found that he gained this incredible, humble mind through this exercise. This is an important thing to keep in mind, is that our minds need to be humble. Do not return evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. And this, at the end of the day, should sum up what it is. If if an earthly governor works evil against you, are you to return evil to that governor? Well, no. If an earthly master commits an act of aggression and evil and abuse, are you to turn and be abusive in the same way? Well, no. And even within marriage, if one spouse is abusive and evil towards the other... Is it good for the other to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling? Well, no. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called that you may obtain a blessing. So let's say just a little bit about this. Christians practice this way of returning blessing on our enemies, of really blessing those who persecute us, of praying for those who harm us, praying for those that are our enemies. Listen to what he says. For he that would love life and see good days, this is from Psalm 34, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do right. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So think about this for a moment. You're in a very difficult, very difficult marriage. Let's say uh, you're a woman or a man, and you're married to an absolute brute of a person uh, who does evil. Peter is calling upon those who are in this situation, these Christians who are in these situations, to understand themselves, to be the object of the Lord's vision, the Lord's eyes. That his eyes are upon the righteous and his eyes are in fact turned against their difficult spouse their even their abusive spouse. And yet they are to turn away from evil and do right even in the midst of this. Now, this is a very difficult uh, road to walk and, and I need to say here that uh, that ought never happen if you are afraid for your children's lives. It should never happen if you're afraid for your own life. This is a radical witness to the gospel Uh, And and it is something that we are definitely called to as a witness, but it does have limits as well, and I need to say that, and I'll say that strongly. Now, starting back up in uh, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? And this is what he's really getting down to it, is like, if you do what's right, then who's going to hurt you for it? Who's going to be mad at you for it if you do what's right? But even if you do, in that strange chance that you might suffer for doing right, this is a repetition of what has been said in the previous chapter, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. And this is where it really comes down to it, is that every Christian in the myriad of relationships, in the myriad of authorities that we're under, pay reverence to Jesus Christ as Lord. And we seek to be obedient to Him and submissive to Him first. To do good in the midst of this world, in the midst of this life. And if we're hated and if we're persecuted for it, then so be it. And Peter's very strongly clear, you will be blessed. Um, We might even say you will be happy if you think only of Jesus in the midst of these difficulties. That's quite true, in fact. You will be happy. You'll be free. Then in verse 16, he speaks of keeping the conscience clear. And keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What is he talking about here when he says keep your conscience clear? He's really saying at the end of the day, don't do anything that you have a knowledge of as something which is evil, uh, that will plague your conscience, plague your, your, your knowledge of yourself, um, cause you to think that you have uh, created a scandal. He says, keep your conscience clear so that when you're abused, you don't think something like this. I'm being abused because I did this that was wrong and evil and awful. But rather, this person is a difficult person, but so that you can bear it up and not think that you're being punished for something you've done. When you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, this often happens as well, that if someone uh, in a marriage or in a government or however it might be, goes after someone who's only seeking to do good, they wind up looking like monsters. And they know it. And Peter is using this in, in a way of saying, hey, listen, if you stick to what is good and you keep your conscience clear, then it is those who hurt you, those who go after you, who will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right... If that should be God's will, then for doing wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now we're getting down to brass tacks. This is the purpose of this entire chapter which is to show that the Christian in doing good, even when you're abused, even when you are maligned, even when you're taken advantage of, which, by the way, there are limits to that as well, but if you can, if you can bear it up and you can pray through it and you can be peaceable and you can maintain your good actions in the sight of God and maintain this good conscience, a clear conscience, then you will do something which is at the heart of it, vicarious on behalf of the one who persecutes you. Listen to what he says. For Christ also died for us, once, died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. So he is actually calling to mind this vicarious action which Jesus Christ accomplishes on our behalf, even as we're the ones who crucify Him. We're entering into Holy Week this coming week, and the the sobering thought that every one of us ought to have is, I did this. (laughs) And I didn't just do it to some guy. I didn't just do it to Jesus, the nice holy teacher. No, I did it to God. And He took it for me. He suffered so that I wouldn't have to. That's a vicarious action. By the way, if we can go back to previous chapters, this is at the heart of this life of God's holy priesthood of the church to exercise a vicarious life on behalf of those who are closest to us, indeed, who are in authority over us. To pray for them, to do good for them, to be kind to them, to not give evil for evil but to return good for evil. And listen to what, what he says. He continues on, and this is where we get really great. This is, it's great that this is happening right before Holy Week. He says, and he made live in the Spirit. So he's speaking of Jesus' not only death, but his resurrection. Clearly pointing, I think, clearly pointing to this understanding that you can suffer great trial, great suffering, even death unjustly. But he's speaking to the Christian as one who has an inheritance that, remember, is imperishable in Jesus Christ, who has triumphed over death. He says, in which, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were saved through water so this is a wonderful teaching of the church uh, that that is um, you might say controversial or unknown but it is that when Jesus descends among the dead he proclaims the gospel he proclaims good news to those who are imprisoned in death, so that even those who who disobeyed in the days of Noah when the ark was being built could be saved by the preaching of the word by Jesus Christ, the word himself. But listen, he just goes straight through and he says... It's like those people who disobeyed in the times of Noah when, when Noah was building the ark, if you can imagine all this, when Noah was building the ark, and a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Okay, So these eight people, their lives are preserved, and their lives are actually preserved as a vicarious action on behalf of all humanity to preserve human life, even amidst God's judgment, They're being raised up out of the water. And then he says this. He says, baptism. It seems out of the blue if you were looking at it, but baptism. Which corresponds to this, this action of raising up Noah and his sons and his son's wives and his wife up out of the water, saved through water. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's break it down here. We know from the rest of the New Testament that the ancient church believed that baptism uh, joined you to Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. Joined you bodily. Paul says in, in uh, chapter 6 of Romans, Do you not know that as many of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized also into His death? So these are they who have been baptized into the death of Jesus, and they have been raised up to be what? To be a holy priesthood, to be uh, to be God's own chosen people who are sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, as he says in the very first two verses. So these are they who have been raised up through the waters of baptism, who have been saved by being joined to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and they have appealed, and this is the part where it gets really really interesting, is this, this is not a removal of dirt from the body. This is not a bath in which you try to wash dirt off of you. But it's an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Well, what does the church teach about baptism? The church teaches about baptism that when one is baptized, they are restored to the status of those who have no sin because they've been joined to Jesus Christ. And His righteousness has become their righteousness. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. So do you see the image that's being that's being given here? It's the earthly authorities and even husbands and wives and masters all have a greater authority whether they recognize it or not, who is Jesus Christ, who has been crucified and risen on their behalf, and who has even gone to the spirits in prison, who did not obey in the days of Noah, who has exercised this vicarious action on their behalf, who desires to even save those who were disobedient. And he's speaking to these Christians as those who have been raised up through the waters of baptism to, in very like manner, Be a vicarious people who exercise a vicarious priesthood on behalf of all humanity. Now this should come into stark clarity in the midst of this uh, strange holy week in which uh, the priests of the church will ascend the altars of the church to pray for the church and to pray for the world when very few people are watching them do it. Um, when we go to the altar to pray for the church and to pray for the world, and there's live streaming, yes, uh, but it is such a hidden action in itself. And yet we believe that we're surrounded by the witness not only of the church that is alive today, those with heartbeats walking around this planet, but the church throughout all time with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we do this thing. And we should be reminded in this week in this coming week that that all the actions of the church are vicarious actions on behalf of the world. so when we submit to earthly authority, when we even submit to unbelieving spouses, when we submit to difficult people, we are taking on a vicarious action on their behalf, and are they disobedient, yes. But we have been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by being bound to it in the sacrament of baptism to be this dynamic witness, to be this vicarious people who exercise this exact priesthood. As the church bears witness in this time in which many in the world are dying of this terrible virus, the church has the opportunity to stand in spiritual sacrifice and witness And not only in those things, but in intercession for this world. Believing that our righteousness, believing that our goodness can in fact be a stand-in for this broken and twisted world. May that be so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.